0: Typically, the talk on a last night of a retreat has something to do with going home and continuing practice in everyday life. And when I do a talk, I usually like to call it something like, um, continuing practice is everyday life, or everyday life is continuing practice. And I like to somehow talk about the ways in which, in the most ordinary ways, continuing our life is a continuation of practice. There are certain nuts and bolts, mechanical things about how one would do the formal practice like sitting or walking, things that we uh, think of as formal um, poses or uh, special times of practice. But I like to talk more about making one's whole life a practice. And it requires talking about what we are practicing, where we're going, and what's the point of this. So I was thinking about that this afternoon. I was thinking about what I would talk about. I was sitting up here in one of this afternoon sittings and thinking a little bit about what I was going to talk about tonight. And I was also thinking about the fact that... uh, at lunch today, uh, Guy and James and I were talking, uh, telling old baseball stories. Depending, depending on our age, we were talking about stories from the 40s or the 50s or the 60s. And uh, recalling names of ball players and did you see that and did you see this. And so you have to know that because you have to know that that was the context in which I was thinking about making a talk tonight that would be the final talk of this particular retreat. Because as I sat here, suddenly a voice in my mind said, and now batting in cleanup position, So I thought I would tell you that particular story. At the time, I laughed to myself, and I thought, whoops, and I thought, no, I'll tell that tonight, because it's important on several counts. One, I want to talk about the ordinariness of this practice. This is ordinary, ordinary people doing ordinary lives. Also, I want to tell you that every moment of sitting on the zafu is not profound samadhi. In case you imagine that it was, that sometimes it's, and now batting in clean-up position, just thoughts coming and going, and that the point of this practice is not profound samadhi. The point of this practice, or a way to say, one way to say, the point of this practice is things come and go, and living gracefully and alertly with our experience as it comes and goes, whatever it is, is really the point of this practice. And in the largest sense, what we're trying to do is to untie those knots in the mind and our conditioning that get in the way of us living with a certain amount of grace and ease with each moment of experience as it comes and goes. I like to think of the point of this practice being more and more able to make wise and kind choices in our life, because we see clearly. Because when we're making wise and kind choices, we're living more happily, not making more trouble for ourselves, not making life more difficult than it is. It's difficult because it's difficult, and it has joys, and it has pains. And really, the best we can do, and that's not a second-class best, the best we can do is live with the pains and the joys in the most graceful way. They come and they go. We make wise and skillful choices around them. It's not mysterious. One of the things that people think about on their last day of practice, formally at a retreat, is, did I do it well? Did I do it as well as I should have? However, he did. It was perfect. was fine. You're still here. I remember uh, when I first began my retreat practice, I fell in love immediately with Dharma. As many of you, I think all of you have, are, falling in love. I think what we're falling in love with is The possibility of peace and touching it from time to time, and the conviction that it is possible in this very life, in this very body. So I was telling about my practice. I started to go to retreats, and I was telling an old friend of mine about my retreat practice, and perhaps I was a little bit emphasizing the rigors of retreat life—how early I got up in the morning, and how little we ate, and uh, how long we sat, and how many hours—and uh, when I got all finished, that none of that impressed him very much. He said, "He said I can't believe you sat alone for two weeks with your mind." And really. <laughs> But really, that's the rigor of this practice. Getting up is nothing. You know, the dietary changes are very... Uh, that's nothing. It's just a week's worth of dietary change. And, and getting up a little bit early, it's healthy. But sitting alone day after day, as you all have been doing, is rigorous. Every possible thing comes up. It does. Everything comes up. For some people, it was a stormier week than other for other people. But never big storms or little storms, stuff comes up. If it didn't come up this week, it'll come up another week. In our life, storms come up, we manage them one way or another, and we continue. And so one way of thinking about this practice is it's a way of discovering that we can deal with the storms in our life, that there's storms in our life, that lives have storms, and that we can do it. It makes a tremendous amount of courage. I didn't always know that I could do it. I used to be more frightened than I am now. Sarati gave me a wonderful title for a talk yesterday and I actually had it written down and then I couldn't find in the paper, but a close approximation she said is why don't you talk about how to remain balanced and calm and Dignified and kind uh, when faced in life by particular difficult challenges. And I thought about that. said it's a great name. Write it down for me on a paper, and I'll use it as a talk. And she wrote it down for me on a paper, and I lost the paper. But <laughs> the thing that I talked, the thing that I thought about, is the line that said, "When faced with particular challenges, every single day we are faced with particular challenges." From the morning till the night, from the moment we get up till the moment we go to fall asleep, the day is full of challenges to behaving in a way that's dignified and alert and wise and kind and doesn't make more trouble in a life where there are possibilities for causing pain at any turn to ourselves or to other people. So it, it was a way for me to think about talking about everyday life is always the practice, because in every moment we're called upon to respond wisely. Responding wisely normally has the element of responding kindly in it as well. And I thought it's, a, it's fun to clarify uh, what practicing in every moment and living wisely means, because sometimes people imagine that that means living emotionally um, uh, on a very level plane. As a matter of fact, one of my concerns, one of my hopes when I began practice, is that my inner life would be a little bit less hysterical. My fear was that it would become totally flat and level, and that I'd become an emotional zombie. And that doesn't happen, of course. In fact, in my experience, I have a much wider range of emotional response than I ever did because I'm less frightened of my emotional response. I I thought of a wonderful story uh, where I saw this in action. I was thinking about um, four or five years ago I went to India to study with a particular teacher who was a is a disciple of ramana maharshi and uh, at the time that i went james was there as well and uh, at the time there were just a small number of people who had come to study with this teacher so it was a quite an intimate group and uh, on one particular day uh, james decided to play a cassette tape of a young boy talking about the mystery and the awesomeness of life. There's a tape that had touched James quite deeply, and he wanted to share it with his teacher, who was eager to hear it. But um, because Punjaji is hard of hearing, James had to do it one sentence at a time on the tape recorder. Play the tape recorder for a sentence, turn it off, and then say to Punjaji quite clearly what that sentence was, and then he turned turn on the tape recorder, listen to another sentence, and repeat it from it. Turn on the tape recorder, another sentence, and repeat it from it. And the tape kind of builds in intensity with this young boy's awe, and there's a certain line at the end, something close to, it's so mysterious, and James said that, and Punjaji heard it, and he burst into tears. And we all sat there, you know, what is the etiquette, what's the decorum for when an eighty-three-year-old guru bursts into tears, and what's more, it's you who have caused that person to burst into tears.
1: <laughs>
0: so, we all sat there, I put down my camera, it didn't seem like a night. <laughs>
1: I knew that the etiquette
0: was not to take a picture of... And he cried, he sobbed. And then about a minute later, the the sobbing stopped, and he laughed, his great, huge laugh that he laughed. And then he finished, and he was all done, and we went on with the next piece of business. And it was such a range of emotional display, in such spaciousness, it was no problem. I thought to myself, oh, okay, that's what it means, freedom of range of emotional response. That's another display of equanimity in the largest sense. So it's not that we're going to become emotionally level. I think we're going to become emotionally responsive because we'll see that stuff comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes, so we can take a risk and relate to things with full passion. The other thing that that practice isn't meant to do for us is have us become in some way um, supernatural. When I began my practice there way twenty years ago there's a lot of talk about being able to do extraordinary things, being able to levitate or um, see things or know things at a distance. Sometimes I'd be sitting on my Zafu and I'd feel particularly light and spacious and uh, m- the sense of my body would disappear totally and I would think to myself, I'm going to levitate. In a minute, I'm going to rise up off the Zafu and then start to have all kinds of ideas about what a spectacle that will make and how people will be <laughs> It never happened. It's not the point of
1: practice.
0: <laughs> it's actually pretty plain this practice support. The, the point is to become wiser and kinder. And some people do that in such a quiet way. You know, some people have very energetic practices, and their bodies do all kinds of energetic and exciting things. My own practice, probably because I'd done a lot of yoga, and it seems to happen more to people. Who have a a, a lot of experience with uh, working with their body. My own practice has a lot of periods of intense um, energetic experience in it. But some people wake up wisely and kindly in the most quiet way. As a matter of fact, in that period of of some time where my body seemed quite uh, overwhelmed with energetic experience. I'd look around at people who were getting wise in a quiet way, and I'd really envy that. I thought, I'd like to have that. Just give me the plain way. I don't... (laughs)
1: Of
0: course, you don't get to choose a way. It just happens. I didn't do this practice to become kinder. If somebody would have said to me in the beginning, why don't you uh, take up Vipassana meditation? You'll get to be kinder and nicer. I would have said, ah, I'm already pretty kind and nice. Maybe not totally kind and nice, but that's not my main problem in life. My main problem in life is that I'm fearful. So I want a practice that's going to make me fearless. I want to be a fearless old woman. Well, actually, through this practice, I became a lot less fearful. And the byproduct of being less fearful is that one becomes kinder and nicer. The title, uh, Jerry Jampolsky called his book, Love is Letting Go of Fear. And it's true that the opposite of fearful is not fearless, it's loving. That our natural state, I believe this profoundly, that our natural state is loving beings, loving, compassionate beings. And when we aren't confused with fears, that's what we are. And as our fears lessen, our innate lovingness manifests. I believe that. Plain does not mean that practice isn't mysterious or that it isn't awesome certain way in which it's awesome because it's so plain. James said last night, he said, My most heart opening moments have come on Lizafru. I believe that. It's mysterious how that happens. Because we're not doing something to have a heart opening. We're doing something to stay awake and to become clear. And when we're awake and clear, the heart opens. I remember being very much uh, impressed by a question and answer that I heard in in a group interview early on in my practice. Somebody asked, my friend Jack who was teaching, where is the bhakti in this practice? Where is the devotion in this practice? No singing, no chanting, no ritual, just sitting, walking, sitting, walking, so plain. Where is the bhakti? And Jack said, and the answer was terrific for me because it informed how I practiced so much, he said, I think this is the most bhakti practice of all. He said, what we do here is we sit down on Azafu and we say, Here I am, God, do whatever you want to me. It was a terrific understanding of how to practice. It was very inspirational because it's so poetic. But that's how to practice. You say, do whatever you want to me, which is the same as saying, here I am. I am open to my experience. Just, I can do this. I accept it. I surrender. It's the most religious movement that we can do. You say, here I am. Whatever is here, I accept it and the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment. And then we discover that we can. And that's the great gift. That's the great reassurance. Because a lot of fear is constellated around the notion that we can't. If this and this feeling comes up, if that and that memory occurs to me, if this and this emotion, I'll be all right unless this happens. If this pain of body or that pain of heart comes up, I can't stand it. You can. I can, you can, we can. That is the great miracle of discovery. It's the great freedom. And then another thing that James said last night in terms of the awesomeness of this, when you see that that's happening, Look around all week. See, we get to have a really good first row seat because we get to look at everybody all week long. And I assure you, everybody looks different as the week goes on. Everybody softens. Everybody becomes easier. You feel it in yourself. I hear it from people in interviews. It's not to say that people don't have struggles, but they struggle softer and softer and softer as the week continues. Everybody melts. And James was talking about the awesomeness of thinking about how does it all work? How does that happen? Is it magic? Is it some spray that's here in the air? Or How does that happen, that we sit and pay attention, walk and pay attention, eat and pay attention, take showers and pay attention? And in fact, our heart relaxes, the mind becomes more malleable, our experience becomes more acceptable to us. We can stand it. All of our life we can stand it more. How does that happen? I think it happens a couple of ways. We could think about the plain way and the awesome way. Just for heuristic purposes, I made that up. (laughs) The plain way is that we just do it. We sit here day after day. of the Soto Zen approach. It's just in the sitting. Whatever our experience is, we just do it. We sit, we walk, we eat, we take showers, we sleep, we sit, we walk, and all the storms and all the pains of heart and mind come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go, and here we still are. And there's a certain way in which that builds a certain nobility of spirit. I did it. I'm still here. It was manageable, and that last crisis was manageable, and the last one, and the last pain, and the last pain, and the last pain, and here I am now. And somehow, the repeated experience of being here for our experience somehow wakes us up to the fact that we can do that. All we need to do is one minute at a time, one moment at a time, one experience at a time. We don't have to do the whole rest of our lives this moment. We just have to do this moment at this moment, and we can. We c- discover it just by doing it. That's quite before insight, and quite before any extraordinary or magical or mystical things. We just do it, and we get it that it's feasible, it can be done. And then the other way, which I just like to call the awesome way, is we really do have insights these very insights that we've spoken about in one way or another in the talks the last few nights, really do see that those things that the Buddha taught as being crucial for freedom are true. That really, things are impermanent. Anicca is true. And Anicca is magic. When you think about it, you think, where did this whole week go? It was ahead of you for the longest time. As if it was coming down the road towards you. The week is coming it's, coming. it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's arrived. It's here. And it's as if it marches by you. It came from a hypothetical future and marched right by you into a mythical past. And where did it go? It's in the same void as the Declaration of Independence. It's has gone. <laughs> And it's magic how that goes. It's really, we get to see that everything is not only inexorably changing, but totally empty. There's nothing left of it but memory, which amounts to some neuronal squiggles, that's all. That's what's left of that whole week. All the storms and all the storm and all the drang and all the insights are a bunch of neuronal squiggles, that's it. Themselves, just electrical impulses. It's all quite empty. And in those moments of seeing that, begin to see how we construct our entire drama out of neuronal squiggles and memories and plans and thoughts. We make it all up, and then we remember it, and then we frighten ourselves (laughs) with it. It's really quite magic when you think about it. We are making it up all the time. If you watch things really closely, sometimes people get so quiet, and they really can be, with every single breath. And then they begin to notice, ah, that's the moment of the arising of the breath. That's the moment of the disappearing. And as things get a little sharper, which sometimes happens when people are practicing over days, say, well, look a little closer to the very beginning. And look a little closer and say, whoa, I see it a little sharper. Look a little closer, a little closer, and then there are moments when you look at the beginning of something and see that there really are no beginnings, because in the beginning is the end, and every experience is disappearing in its arising. Then you think, whoa, that business about anatta, it's all empty, it really is. If I look close enough at everything, it disappears, in its arising is its end. say, whoa, and then we get all excited, those are the awesome moments of practice. It's really true. So they're very exciting and they inspire a real interest in staying alert because the whole display gets so interesting. Imagine that. It's awesome also and magic also. the kind of blissful experiences that sometimes happen, the energetic experiences. Don't have to think of them as huge energetic experiences, just a moment maybe where your hair stands on end. There's a little bit of a thrill through the body or just get goose pimples all of a sudden. It's a little thrill of rapture through the body. Sometimes people have very dramatic kinds of rapture events, sometimes just a little thrill. You go in and you smell the lunch, and the lunch is so wonderful. Just such a moment of pleasure that goes through the body. say, whoa, what a pleasure. I just had that moment of pleasant experience, and I was up for it. I enjoyed it while it was here. I felt it. So it doesn't have to be bells and gongs. When I started my practice, it was just pursuant to the whole psychedelic era, and I was waiting for firecrackers and Fourth of July of the mind, and... Sometimes there are, but generally it's more confusing than anything else. And really the moments of presence are themselves so thrilling. I learned one of my crucial, crucial Dharma lessons right here in this monastery some time ago on the bench outside of the back door at the other side of the building. Um, Imagine that stone bench is still there. Uh, At the time, I had been very impressed um, with—and still are am impressed with the poetry of Annie Dillard. Probably you've read Annie Dillard. She's a naturalist, And a poet, and she wrote a book called uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which very much impressed my early days of practice. She lived for a year in the Kentucky uh, forest, I think, and just watched the seasons change. And wrote some beautiful prose about it, and uh, talked about, described an incident where she said, one day I was coming back to my cabin at the end of the day, and the sun was setting, and the sun came through the tree. She said, and suddenly I saw the cedar tree on fire, and just I had a thrill from thinking about it. And, of course, I knew that the cedar tree wasn't on fire in the sense of having been struck by lightning and burning up. I understood that it was a numinous experience and that it was shining and shimmering in a certain extraordinary way. And then, by and by, she talked about how that vision subsided, but how it had informed and um, so excited her vision that she would uh, felt ready to wait forever for it to happen again. So, I was waiting for a cedar tree to be on fire, in my experience. I wanted a magic moment, and uh, there was a day in... uh, the retreat, I think it was February or March, so it was earlier in the year, and it was a cold day, Mm -hmm. cool still, and uh, it was just before lunch, and I'd been practicing for some days, maybe a week by that time, and I went out just before lunchtime and sat down on that stone bench outside, and I sat down and I noticed before I closed my eyes that the tree in front of the bench, that there was a tree right in front of me. And it was not yet uh, in flower. It was early in the season. But it was starting to have buds on it. And uh, I closed my eyes. And I sat there. It was cold, cool. And there was still a little bit of fog, as as there was this morning before the fog lifts off. It's fog midday. So as I sat there, I realized that not only was it cool, it was a little damp and moist. So I was sitting on a cold bench, and I felt I'm sitting on a cold, hard, stone bench. My eyes are closed, and I'm breathing, and I realize the air around me is not only cool, it's a little cold, and not only that, it's a little damp. And I was hungry, because it was midday, and I was hungry. And I was alert to all of the cold, and hungry, and damp, and sitting, and breathing, and And then I was aware that I felt really fine. All of that stuff was happening, and I felt fine. And then the bell rang for lunch, and I noticed that no impulse arose in me to get up and get on the lunch line. I heard the bell, noted it, heard it, Knew it was the lunch bell, was happy to hear the lunch bell, but I didn't leap up, just sitting there. And I realized that what was different in that moment was that I was quite content, and that it was a moment totally sufficient unto itself. And it wasn't as if I didn't anticipate eating lunch, I knew I would go and eat my lunch, I had an appetite, I was hungry, but the moment was just fine was a moment in which no desire arose. It was such a moment of splendid release. And I realized that. And I thought, hey, this is a special moment. Then I thought, I bet if I open my eyes now, (laughs) that tree is going to be numinous and shining. And I opened my eyes, and the tree was just plain. It's the same tree that it had been before I closed my eyes. And then I realized that I was so relieved about that, because had it been doing some magical thing, I would have had to wait for it to do it again. This way, I don't need to wait. I don't need to wait for a special moment. I don't need to wait for trees to be ablaze. If they are, sometime, somewhere, that'll be fine. In the meantime, a moment in which no desire arises, a moment sufficient unto itself, is an extraordinary moment. And I realized that that's the moment that I really wanted in my life, that a moment of peacefulness in which no desire in that moment is arising is the most blended moment of all. It was a very important learning for me. Not that we'll go through our life desireless, we have lots of desires all the time, many of them wholesome, many of them uh, are desires we can appropriately address, but the moments in which there's no pulling in the mind, moments in which we say, this is okay, this is fine, this is fine, this is okay, those are the moments that we want, it's quite plain. There's a way in which I think about this practice as the untying of knots in our conditioning. We've gotten conditioned to respond in different ways that keep us from being at peace in the moment. You know how we sometimes say that expression, we say, I'm all tied up in knots? I think we are tied up in knots that are part of our conditioning. And I've been listening to people report their experience in, uh, in interviews this week, and I was struck by the two different varieties of knots that get untied. Sometimes people say, you know, I feel quite concentrated. And in fact, the more concentrated I'm becoming, the more I am aware of this uh, strong feeling that it starts right here. It doesn't matter where it starts, starts under my arm or in back of my shoulder or in the middle of my heart. And then as I pay, uh, bring my attention to rest really in it, to try to be with it, it not only accentuates, but it, it spreads. And I feel really I can't take a breath without it getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And so we work with different ways that people can relax around that. And I always get to tell people a story at that point of my own experience with that many years ago, where I came and reported that to a teacher, and uh, I sat with, and sat with it, and sat with it, and sat with it, and sat with it, and it'd get worse and worse, and then I'd think, I can't breathe, I can't take a breath, my whole rib cage. And my teacher would say, just be with that, just try to relax, it's karmic knots untying. I would say, what is that? And they'd say, it's karmic knots untying. And I think to myself, yeah, yeah, (laughs) because, but in fact, after a while, I sat and sat and sat, and after a while, it would untie. And then I thought back and I said, well, I don't know what happened. It would often happen without any uh, emotional content, without any story content, just some not, untied. And I have enjoyed, since I had a kind of a little skeptical sense of, yeah, yeah, when my teacher told me it's karmic knots untying, every time I get to tell somebody it's a karmic knot untying, I have a particular pleasure about doing that. And I tell them why, kind of (laughs) passing along the, the heritage of, it is a karmic knot untying, who knows what, and who knows how it got into the body, but there it is. There's the other kind of knot that you can tell that unties, and that's a knot in the mind, which is a knot that keeps us caught in a, particular, in a particular pattern of responses. One of the things that people typically say when they come to report an interview is, it's become so clear to me, my whole psychological dynamic. Whatever I knew about myself, I now know it, totally in spades. It's clear as anything. It's I can't turn around without seeing either how every moment is tinged with self doubt or how self conscious I am or how uh, this I am or how that I am. In my case it's as how I can take every moment of neutral data and spin it into a fret. Which is really <laughs> which is really what happens if you have restlessness as the principal difficult mind state. People say Now that I can see it all over the place, I'm really aghast, and how am I ever going to get caught out of this? I'm caught in it. The faster I try to stop it, it's starting somewhere else. And I think that that knot unties, that knot of habitual conditioning to a certain response with seeing it clearly. Not I think it, I know it. It's my experience that it unties. And I think it unties just by seeing it, and that each time we see it, it uh, causes a certain disidentification from that way of behaving. In my own case, uh, I did all kinds of things. As soon as I was clear that my most difficult mind response was the response of uh, making a worry out of things, I began to tell people, do you know what? My most principal hindrance is fretting. I worry about it. It kind of witnessed it all over the place. I, I gave classes in dealing with restlessness as the most difficult um, uh, hindrance. I had classes for that you could only get into that class if restlessness was your principal <laughs> hindrance. And people would say, it's not my hindrance, can I be in the classes?" And no, no, this is only for people. And I talked about it all the time, and I talked about it, and other people talked about it. And what it did for me was it took, it, it it took away the amount of tension around feeling so embarrassed about having it i just have it everybody's got something so with only five hindrances and if if yours is not restlessness it's one of the other four and to be able to and to be able to tell people you know what restlessness is my principal mind hindrance and what's more i'm short and i have brown eyes it's just it's just how the package came and take away all the tension around how am I going to get over this and maybe I should have more therapy or what if people know, they know I'm short and that I have brown eyes, and now they know that other thing. And it begins <laughs> it, begot, it begins to cut off the identification with it, and lo and behold, it starts to have less of a control on the life. Now, what has happened for me, and we'll have to stay with each other for the next 30 years so that you can know the is that the mind operates in the, same, in the same patterns. What happens is that the patterns cease to be as charged, so that given a certain piece of data, sometimes, not as much as before, but sometimes, I take that data and I have a reflexive catastrophic thought about it. But I see it. Nothing happens. What happens, it's been kind of disconnected from the uh, adrenaline wiring because I could have a catastrophic thought, and I think, wow, look at that. I guess the hard wiring is still in there. It's so far, still operating. I wonder if that'll ever stop. But I'm not as caught by it. I don't have to do the whole song and dance that was part of it before. It's a tremendous liberation. It's a tremendous liberation to be able to see it as a pattern and say, oh, there's my pattern. It's still doing, but it's not doing me. It's just as if someone has installed a tape deck in the mind that from time to time plays annoying music. (laughs) You do not have to dance, you just let alone. So I think that this practice of paying attention moment to moment, we untie our knots, knots in the body from who knows where, knots in the mind from who knows where. I like thinking about that this afternoon because it is now sundown on Friday, and one of the, the prayers in Hebrew liturgy, and that people especially say at sundown on Friday, uh, has the line, um, Ana tatir That means, please, may my knots be untied.
1: <laughs>
0: it's a great prayer. <laughs> may my knots be untied. So that's, I think, what we are doing each time we sit down here and we attempt, moment to moment, not to get tied in a knot. May my knots get untied. May I continue to untie my knots faster than I tie new ones. That's the bridge for talking about continuing practice in life and going home. We continue to live in a way that's wise, because we tie less knots as we're doing that, and we untie some as we're doing it. And one of the ways, we'll talk tomorrow, probably at some more length in the morning, about taking practice into your life, but I want to talk particularly for a moment about working with the precepts. We take the precepts in a formal way when we start a retreat. I often think we should take them again in a formal way as we leave a retreat, because the precepts are the precepts. They're about living in a way that's non-abusive and non-exploitive in a way that's awake, so that we won't be abusive (coughs) and exploitive. Sometimes I think I should only teach one precept. I undertake the precept to keep my mind clear, because then we would not behave in ways that are abusive or exploitive, because they cause pain to ourselves and to other people. So we could take one precept, undertake the precept to stay awake. Of course, it's nice to take the five, because we can think of the specific ways in life that we tend most to get into trouble, where we become unconscious. We take the precept around sexuality, because that's a strong drive in us, and it's one of the ways that we could easily forget ourselves and act in a way that might be uh, abusive or exploitive if we were not clear. We take the precept about right speech in a different way in the world than we do here on retreat. In retreat, it's a pretty easy, right speech, you just don't speak. In the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the life, it's a little bit more difficult because we speak, and there's so many possibilities for causing pain to oneself or to other people. You may have discovered that this afternoon in talking. You feel, oh, why did I say that, that was a klutzy thing to say, or I made myself look bad, or maybe I made them look bad. It's much more complicated to speak than not to speak. I discovered when I got home from some period of intensive practice how much intention practice became a part of right speech practice, that when I'm on retreat, uh, I don't speak at all. So I get in the habit, as you did here of recirculating thoughts or responses you have a response to a certain thing but you don't say it out it kind of recirculates and then you get out in the world and we start in again to recirculate it on the outside commentary but in the first days after a retreat my speech is not as reflexive i hope it's a little less reflexive now but when i discovered that I would discover that my husband would say something to me just in the day or two or three following a retreat, and in the few moments between him asking something and my preparing a response, I would see what the components of the response were, and I would see perhaps that 80% of the response was the response to the factual question that he had asked, and maybe 10% was saying it in some clever way, because I have a good gift of verbal nuance that's not bad and maybe 10% was upmanship or getting back at him for some imagined slight of previously that if you're a person with good verbal nuance you can often get away with it. the trouble is that you don't actually get away with it because the other person feels it and you feel it too so there there's a fallout from it and it's not worth it so what I discovered in that moment is discovering, well, my 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 uh, intention is mixed. And I really took on seriously the practice of right speech as a predominant, preeminent practice in my life. I talk a lot in my work, I have a very large, immediate family, so I have all kinds of opportunities to talk. So for me that's a very crucial practice, and right speech, like Any other of the disciplines of right action requires the two path parts that are right wisdom, right understanding and right aspiration to see how much trouble and how much pain one causes when one's actions are not right, it really causes one to aspire that they should be, and also links into What's customarily thought of as the samadhi part of this path, the mind training part, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, because I cannot take on a dedication to the practice of right speech or right action unless I am living with a certain degree of right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness, because then otherwise I won't be able to do it. I need to know what my intention is in order to make sure that it's right intention. So the bridging place, I think, for me, and perhaps for you, in thinking about how do we move from this isolated mode to the relational mode, the key is we move, I think, uh, just shifting the emphasis from the intense samadhi practice, which we do by ourselves, as really as monastics, to relational practice, which is the sila, virtue part of the path, which is interactive, which is the way that we are with people, and recognizing that that sila part of the path, the morality part of the path, right action, right speech, right livelihood, really depends on right understanding, right aspiration, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. The, all of practice is involved in being a person alert in a wise and kindly way in the world. is a way that sometimes we think of practice as uh, mysterious, because the form, when we come here, is unusual, the silence and the sitting and the walking, but what we do now is we continue the same practice of being alert moment to moment, opening to the moment, seeing it clearly, trying to be present for it seeing our reactions, evaluating our responses, responding in a wise way, moment to moment. So sometimes when people say, what's your practice? And I hear that I'm a meditation teacher, they say, what do you practice? I, say, I tell them I'm practicing becoming a wise and compassionate person. Then if they want to know what things do you do, to help you in your practice. I say, well, I sit, I do this practice, that practice. But those are techniques. Really what we're practicing is being an awake person making wise responses moment to moment, so that all of life becomes practice. We don't have to think about, oh dear, this practice is finishing, when will I practice again? You practice tomorrow. And every day, just by a commitment to awakened, mindful living. It's totally thrilling. It's the most awesome, thrilling thing to do. And it's totally plain. I thought I would finish by reading something to you. An historic moment. I'm pretty excited about doing it. Usually we read some poem or something that somebody's written. This is something that I wrote, and it's the first chapter of a book I wrote. That is the first book I ever wrote that will be published in September and that I'll read in public places around. And I haven't read it aloud ever, except to myself. So I don't know how it is to read myself. Uh, I'm pretty excited, actually, about doing it. So it's a first for me, and it's a first for you, and it's a first for this book. So. I should tell you that this book is about practice, It's about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Hindrances and the Three Marks of Experience and the Four Brahma Viharas, all of practice. And it tells lots of stories, some of which you heard me tell this week just a book of stories, mostly about my friends and people who live in a wise way. So it's a contemporary Dharma book. And the first part of the book, it's a kind of a preamble to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, are some things, of some ideas about how ordinary spirituality is. And, The very first chapter is called, Spiritual is Ordinary. A few years ago I was teaching in another city and the person who was to be my host telephoned me in advance to see if I had any special food requirements. I appreciated his concern and explained my eating preferences. I also mentioned that I don't normally eat much for breakfast, but that I do like coffee in the morning. He replied in a very surprised voice, You drink coffee? I realized that I had just made a heretical confession. I needed to do some fast mind-scrambling to find a graceful way to explain to my host, without losing my spiritual stature, that I do, indeed, drink coffee. There are some peculiar notions about what constitutes being spiritual. I have a cartoon on the wall of my office that shows two people having dinner in a restaurant. One of them is saying to the other, it's such a relief to meet someone who isn't on a spiritual quest. (laughs) I agree. There's an enormous possibility of getting sidetracked into self-conscious holiness, of putting energy into acting the part of a spiritual person. A dear friend of mine, as he has become more and more established as a meditation teacher, has become less and less hesitant about telling people that he loves football games. (laughs) (laughs) He even admits that he gets very excited about the games cheering at his TV set as if he was sitting in the stadium. No dispassionate attitude of may the best team win for him. I know he has a wonderful level of understanding and he behaves like a regular person in a regular world. Being a meditator and developing equanimity did not mean becoming weird. I used to think if I ever wrote a book about waking up, I'd call it, it's plainer than you think, or it's easier than you think. It does not need to be a big deal. Sometimes people decide to make a lifestyle change in the service of waking up. Some people join communities or religious orders. Some people change their diet. Some people become celibate. All of those choices are, for some people, very helpful tools for waking up, but they aren't inherently spiritual. Other people choose other tools. In this book, the principal tool, which is invisible, is being mindful. So let's sit for a minute. This talk was given by Silvia Burstein on July 28, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.